nobody converts anybody else. God does all that. But if you can put a seed in there, if, if because of the way you speak or whatever the story you tell can touch someone, it may or may not lead to their life in, in, Christi- in the Christian world. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Radio. You've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. And this week, we've got not one, but two special guests. First up, Sir Cliff Richard has been talking to us. It's actually the front cover story of Premier Christianity magazine. So if you want to read this interview, you can do that at premierchristianity.com. But you're going to be hearing Sir Cliff in conversation with the Reverend Cindy Kent very shortly. And then later on, in part two, you'll hear Cara Bentley interviewing Heidi Crowter, the Down Syndrome campaigner, about her faith and about how she's fighting for a change in the law. So inspiring stuff on both counts coming your way this afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio. Without any further ado, let's listen in to this first interview. This is the Reverend Cindy Kent in conversation with Sir Cliff Richard. Over 250 million records worldwide, 21 million single sales in the UK, the number one best-selling music artist of all time. A belated happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. By the way, Cindy, that 250 million records, do you know when that was worked out? My then manager, Peter Gormley, so he died, I think, 27 years ago, and it was three or four years before that, that he got EMI to count up what I'd sold. So it was 250 million 33 years ago. It's a big number, but, but 80 is a big number as well, Cliff. And I mean, that is fantastic. How does it feel to be 80? It, it feels no different, actually, to being 79, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, 80, is, it's a big, huge number, but I don't feel it weighing me down. You know, I, I think obviously sometimes even the thought of ageing uh, upsets people. And uh, I remember when Scylla, God bless her, about two or three years before she actually died, she was going to be 70, I think, and she kept saying to me in Barbados, it was, I don't want to be 70, I can't. <laughs> and uh, if you have an attitude about age, the, the danger is that that could damage your your sights on life. You just, I think just living it, being what it is and enjoying it. And even if you're not uh, physically able to do too much, do what you can. and. Do it with the people at the same standard. I play tennis mostly at people at the same standard. So we have fun, but none of us are going to win Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> so you've come a long way since the Quintones. I, uh, tell me about them. What, what sort of music did you play? Well, in those days when I was still at school, then I would have been probably about 14, 15, I suppose. And um, we started to hear, well, I think, Diana had come out, wasn't it? Paul Anker or something like Paul that. Anker, yeah, we would do yeah. things that we heard um, that were were kind of uh, with harmonies on them. I remember there's another one called Eddie, my love. Eddie, my love, tell me one line. And we would find out which the five of us would sing. Obviously, two of us must have sung unison, but maybe an octave apart. And then the other three did the harmonies. And so it was just, a, and we used to play only in the school hall and um, end of term party or something like that. And that was it. But it was Elvis that changed everything. You know, uh, two of my friends after after the Quintones, or maybe during the Quintones, a, a guy called Terry Smart played drums. 
Uh, Norman Mithlin was a neighbor of mine, also in the same school, played guitar and I played guitar. And we started hacking around, but it was hearing Elvis that absolutely, well, it changed so many people's lives. It changed mine completely. I got That's... focused onto something that had it seemingly come from outer space because there had been <laughs> nothing like that. Can you imagine in those days? I mean, you're too young to remember, but uh, the BBC would be playing. They only had, I think, the light program and the home service. I think the light program would play music quite often. And you'd hear Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Teresa Brewer, Ella Fitzgerald, all great singers. But, you know, the strange thing was none of them made me and my friends want to be like that. It was Elvis and Buddy Holly and Ricky Nelson. They're the ones that suddenly turned us on to that well, America will always be the fatherland of rock and roll, but it turned us on to that music that they had created. And even yeah. that wasn't a, it wasn't a brand new thing. It was a, a mixture of country, of a bit of jazz, of soul music, gospel music. It was all mixed together. And when it came out, it came out as, well, since my baby left me, finally a place to go Elvis. Uh, brilliant. I mean, I can remember what I was when I first heard him. I think most people probably can. And it's very kind of you to say I won't remember the light programme, but I was actually on it from time to time. <laughs> now, you've picked up lots of awards over the years. Is there any one that stands out that you think, oh, that's my whole career, worth it just to have got that? The knighthood. Oh, you know, that's the award, uh, the award of awards when you think about it, because for a start, it was not even on my radar screen at all. I mean, you know, when I started looking at rock and roll, I'd have all oh, Elvis, Little Richard, they'd all be on that radar and we'd steal from him, whatever we could. But the knighthood, it it was, it was the, I mean, it was the actors got it, you know, actors love it. They got knighthoods <laughs> and businessmen got knighthoods and then MPs and people in parliament got knighthoods. So it was not on my radar at all. So when the letter came through from the prime minister's office at that time, um, it, 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 I fell on the floor with laughter, actually. I was hysterical for quite a while. Friend Bill, you remember Bill? I do. Um, of course you remember Bill. He, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm not laughing because I think it's funny. I'm just going to stop laughing. And it was a fantastic honor to get that, for the queen to dub you on the shoulders and then put the award around your neck and... It was just fantastic. Oh, I think that's absolutely brilliant and well-deserved and it's really lovely. Now, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you lots and lots of times over the last, well, actually, it's nearly 60 years that we've known each other, which I find really quite hard to believe. Um, but <laughs> I, I thought I'd put a thing on Facebook and ask people what they'd like to ask you. Now, it won't surprise you that the top question that came from the ladies was, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> I used to always say, I used to get letters from, people's parents saying, oh, my daughter's madly in love with you. Will you marry her? I said, I'll wait. So I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'll wait. Move, moving swiftly on, the next popular question is, have you got a favourite song from your new album, The Air That I Breathe? Well, do you know, I, there's, there's one song on the album that was meant to be on the previous album, but we couldn't get it on there. And it's the one that features Mark Knopfler on guitar and it's called P.S. Please. It's the most wonderful song. And I've never sung the lyric, a lyric like that because it's posthumous. It's obviously the singer uh, has died before his daughter was born, but they'd already given her a name. And he, he leaves her Christmas cards and, and New Year messages and some advice. And he's just singing 
P.S. Please remember me from your first steps to your anniversary. And it's just absolutely fantastic song. Now, do you have a favourite gospel song, Cliff? Well, funnily enough, now that I've done a gospel song on the album with someone that, that I'm sure you know, Sheila Walsh. Yes. Sheila was a Scottish girl. and I'm, She came on tours with me, us. I, I can't remember who was to be on there, but she used to tour with me when we did gospel concerts and some charity work together. She now lives in America. Her producer, John Hartley, um, got in touch with me and said, Sheila's doing this album and she'd like you to sing a duet. I said, send me the demo. You know, I, I'm ne I've never changed in this respect in that I don't like recording things unless I really like them. Anyway, they sent me this demo and it sounded like a brand new gospel song. Turns out it's an old hymn written in the 1700s, I think. And uh, <laughs> it's just the most wonderful song. And what makes it more special for me, because I discovered, I've, I looked it up actually, but I think you mentioned it to me as well, that he was a minister. The guy that wrote it was a, 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 a reverend was going to travel somewhere to preach and wanted his family with him. So his daughter and three, do three daughters and his wife got on a boat and they sailed off. Yeah, yeah. He never saw them again. They drowned. There's something happened on the boat. It sank. They all, he lost his whole family. And now for me, you know, I think to myself, faith can get you through almost everything. For him to be able to, years later, put pen to paper and fingers on the keyboard, I don't, I don't know how he wrote it, to write a song like, It Is Well In My Soul, mm. having done, having gone through that terrible uh, loss, it means a lot to me now. When, I, when I'm listening to it, I, I constantly think about what this man went through and how his faith got him through. And in a way, I, my faith got me through for the worst years of my life. Yes, yes. Can we come on to that in a minute or two? Because there's a few more yeah. questions that have come up now. Um, have you got a favourite Bible passage and why? Um, there's, I think it's Philippians 4.13 or something like that. And it's the one that says, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Yeah. In other words, we, we are all capable of doing just about anything. But if we want to do something really well, it has to come from this other source of strength. So that's, that was one that I, I, I that comes to mind. That's really good. Now, I remember when we first got together and toured and did all those gospel concerts, we were raising money for Tear Fund, a brand new charity, as you remember. Yes. And we had some good fun then because we broke new ground, didn't we, with stage shows and TV shows all on a religious theme. Would you ever think of doing anything like that again? Yeah, I would, but I went through a period where I thought, you know, someone else has got to do this, you know, because at that stage we were all... A heck of a lot younger and <laughs> I, well we all had a younger group of people watching us coming to us listening to us and yeah i would still do something i mean I, it's it's hard i but no one seems to be coming through at the moment i'm not hearing of you know like i i met you because you were with the settlers that you were willing to do charity shows that you're a believer and uh that seems to have gone a little bit, but no, I'd be happy to do something like that again. It's always very good. And of course, when I suddenly started to do gospel concerts on my own, I made sure that the public knew that I wouldn't be singing congratulations, that I wanted to spend the evening with them, to sing to them about things that could change your life. And, and you know, sometimes I, I, I added Devil Woman because it's not a gospel song. But I got it, it, the story attached to Devil Woman was in Australia. I got a letter from a woman there and she said, 
I want to tell you that my my friend was head, was wanting to go to the um, to a, uh, have a seance, seance, yeah, and and be in touch with her father or something. And I'm thinking, oh my God, the Bible just don't you know don't get involved. It's dangerous and all that. So she said, she I I gave my friend. She said, your devil woman record, and she wrote and the friend wrote back saying, I've heeded the warning in the lyrics. I'm not going. I thought that that record was oh, never made. Yeah. To, to give some, that lesson to anybody and yet she found something in it and so for me it was encouraging to think that a pop record could actually help someone in some way and so you know that those concerts I wanted to share mostly what I felt you can't you know nobody converts anybody else God does all that but if you can see put a seed in there if because of the way you speak or whatever the story you tell can touch someone, it may or may not lead to their life in, in, Christi in the Christian world. There's a quote that you've got, and I can't remember the exact words about rock and roll and, and God being in, in God's hands is quite a good thing. And I can't remember the exact quote now. Is it about? It was a headline in the Melody Maker from way back, those musical papers we had, Melody Maker. And it said, rock and roll and God work together well in the hands of someone who loves them both. And it was, a, it was an article about a show I had done in Belfast. Uh, and so a gospel, a gospel show. So I loved that. I thought I'd, that's, that's a good way to go. <laughs> it's, it's, I couldn't remember it word for word, but you did. And that's good. So let's move on now to those terrible events which have overshadowed those last few years. It started what, in April, uh, August 2014. The BBC raided your home live on television and carried on forever. Where did you think God was in all that? Well, I don't think he was in that. He was in my life, though. I mean, uh, it's it's really strange how even now I still get people who say they don't believe in God. If something bad happens, they immediately say, well, I can God allow this to happen. So they actually argue with somebody that they don't believe exists. For me, for me, he's always always been there. And when, when this thing happened, um, August 2014, um, it was absolutely soul-destroying, really because I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine that somebody would make up a story that could have killed me. If it had happened earlier in my career, it would have completely smashed my career. So it must have been a vindictive thought, although I forgave the guy because my mind, again, God was always with me. I always felt that God was with me. I kept saying to myself, in fact, my friend John, who had picked me up off the floor, there were a group of us, a group of guests at my house in Portugal. And I walked in, two, it was two days later after the news broke. And I, my legs gave way and I fell on the floor and I was weeping. And it was John that came in. I'm glad he's the one that came in and saw me like this. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I feel like I'm in a deep hole and I, I don't know that I'm gonna get out. So he knelt beside me and said, did you do this? I said, no. He said, have you ever done anything like it? I said, absolutely not. He said, I believe you. You know you didn't do it. And what's more, God knows you didn't do it. Stand up, you can get through this. So that began, that began to make me feel stronger, although it still, it was the worst four years. It was the most horrible four years. But I felt that God was alongside me. And of course, in the end, in spite of having loads of people come to visit me, they were all my friends came and really spoke to me well and kept me calm during the day. And we also, I laughed. We all laughed at things that happened. 
But in the end, when you're lying in your bed, there's suddenly nobody or is there. I, I talked to God so much during that four year period. He must have got really bored. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself praying for people and I'm saying, here I am again, you know, same names. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yes. uh, but to me, to me, that was really vital. It was a vital part of me surviving those years because I never felt devoid of God. You, you know, you can question it. And so, but the thing I was going to say, though, I forgive, I forgave my accuser. The, the, that third night after I'd fallen down and got up and, and I'd been helped by John to, to understand things a bit better. The following night I woke up and by the way, it's in my book, of course, but I always woke up at 3.15. I have no idea. I feel I should go and see a psychiatrist to see if that means anything. 3.15 I'd wake up and then instead of just lie there running, I would start praying. Family, friends, people who are sick, everybody. And, um, and in the end, of course, uh, it was just a matter of me realizing that I needed to do something here. I didn't want to continue. Even in the first three days, there was a hate. Who is this guy? How could he do this for me? And I was getting frustrated and I beginning to hate him. And so I just said to God, look, I would like to for forgive him. I don't know about you. I've not done it so very often, but I just said, I forgive him. And I felt okay. And in the end, I think what forgiveness is, it's more about you, the forgiver, than it is about the person. This man, who I don't even know his name. He doesn't know. Well, he does know now that I've forgiven him. If he saw the interview I did with Gloria Hunterford, if he watches this or hears this, um, he'll know that I forgave him. But at the time, he didn't know. He didn't know for at least four years that I had already forgiven him for what he did. I, Cindy, I started making up reasons. And one of them was, maybe he's got a child. You know, we've all seen it in movies. That's so sick, he can't afford to get it to America where there's a surgeon that could cure people. He may have wanted some money. I thought of all sorts of things, but that's the one I used to think mostly of. And then I thought, if that's the reason, I can forgive him because he's trying to do good for somebody else. And so uh, I, I got through. I, I, I still to this day can't believe that uh, how people survive completely survive it, particularly if they're hit by bad things, without having that other that other being that we can't even describe, really. It's hard to say other than Jesus, as a man, was a man on this planet, but he was a spiritual creature, a godly figure. But uh, if it's not in your life, I don't know how you manage. I have to remind you how manage without. Not, not many people do. Yeah, and we do say in the Lord, <laughs> yeah, we say in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Forgive us our trespasses as those we who forgive those us. who trespass yeah. again. And we say it quite glibly yeah. sometimes, don't we? But you were put in that position of actually being challenged to to eat your own words, as they say. I mean, that must have been quite a big yeah, step. Yeah, it was a big step for me. And that's why I feel that my, my Christian faith grew because of the four years. So I can't completely, I mean, would I want to go through it again? No, I don't think I would. But but if I had to, I would deal with it the same way. If it was if it happened to me again, I would deal with it in the same way. It's um it was it's impossible for me now looking back to have gone through that without knowing that God was there mm -hmm. and that He loved me. You know, in a way, you're loved by lots of people. Most of us who are in the public eye are loved by groups of people. I mean, when I say loved, we should have another word for it, don't we? The, the Bible's got various the old language had different words for like if you love like i used to say on stage i love the skin of custard and i have to use the same word to say i love god i'm thinking 
no God, skin of custard. There has to be another word, but we don't have enough language to, to accommodate God. So I just did the best I can. <laughs> Were you aware of Christians praying for you during that oh, time? Oh, yes, I was. I have the, 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 Sally and Ian, uh, from, they're attached or have worked with one of the prayer groups for the Christian Art Centre. And uh, they and my, my I have uh, friends and family too that were praying for me constantly, constantly, over and over again. They still pray for me, so it's uh, it's it's just it's just fantastic for me. I, I everything every time I do, I get I get a messages from people say, "Oh, we've been praying for you," and certainly um, it, even when I went to Wimbledon, I can't tell you the full story because there was a swear word in it. But uh, but this woman did say she was absolutely praying for me every night. I think that's a real honour to, to have people that sure. care for you that much. I came into the court one day and, and sat with you, and I must admit it, it was horrendous for me to hear the things they were saying about you. I don't know what it was like for you day after day, but I remember giving you being sort of led to give you the words to Psalm 40, and you said it yeah, helped so you. The, yes, it was. I mean, when I um, it, it's, there's so much in the Bible that if you read it, if someone points you out to something, you can see where you fit into it. Remind me, what, the 40, was that the one that's um, uh, Down in the out pit. of the mire? Being in the pit. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. you see, because of because of what I felt in that pit, like I was in a pit of, and I couldn't get out, it seems as though that's the, I, I, I translated mire as being stuck and then it said that God lifts you up out of the mire and places your foot on a rock. And, and you think, mm. oh, yeah, I can relate to that. And absolutely, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, all these, all these things. I mean, I know you prayed for me, and I'm very grateful for that, Cindy. But it was that you, you, you need, I think there's nobody that doesn't need prayer. Because we're none of us perfect, we are never going to be perfect okay some of us look towards perfection and try to aim towards it but you know it may be a thousand steps away and we take half a step and that's about absolutely it's a great privilege to pray for people as well i mean i don't know about you but i start going to bed earlier and earlier now because my prayer list gets longer and longer and i'm sort of there for ages but it's a, it is a wonderful privilege to lift somebody before god in prayer i i just think sometimes i get the hairs on the back of my neck go a bit sort of prickly then i think that you know just by saying their name i'm kind of placing them in in, in god's, god's hands, hands well, somehow. that's what prayer is about and um, sometimes people think yeah. praying is about oh please get i want a number one record please Yes. I mean, okay, yeah, I do with that as well. <laughs> I don't. But, but, but praying sometimes is um, is more of what you're giving, that you're actually present. You're taking somebody that you care for, or are concerned about, and taking them and placing them in God's care. Now, you know, the funny thing is, of course, you have to get used to the fact that God doesn't answer everything the way we want Him to. Otherwise, we'd, yeah, otherwise I would be number one every day in the charts. <laughs> But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. It's more, again, praying is like forgiving. It's more for you saying, I believe in you. Please help these people for whatever it is. I've played for people with cancer, uh, people who, some people that I found that were in prison, uh, falsely accused people that wrote to me after my, my ex escapade. And um, so it's, it, prayer is a, is a, is a, honorable thing to do because it's about other people and you're right I, yeah. I used to always pray in bed when that those four years I was not able to sleep past 3 15 um 
now nowadays now I've, i extended it now i pray a little bit sometimes i find a fall asleep while i'm praying um, and then i thought well i'll start doing this while i'm shaving <laughs> you know or in the shower yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so that you're yeah. doing something else but you still got your mind working on that spiritual aspect of life Excellent. Well, your latest book, Cliff, I'm uh, it's the Dreamer. It's your latest book, and uh, it's excellent. It tells your I've story. Got one. Oh, snap! Snap! <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating. I mean, your story is a good one. It takes you right the way through everything. But it's called the Dreamer. Why? Well, because my dreams all came true. Um, you know, when you think about, I used to dream about being Elvis. I didn't dream about being like him. I used to wake up in the morning very disappointed that I wasn't him because in my <laughs> dreams I was Elvis. But in the end, I did become kind of not like him, but I mean, I started having a career that was like his. And in everything I wanted to do in life, there'd be a dream for this and a dream for that. And everything, if it would, the book is just full of dreams that came true. And now when I look back on it, I think, oh gosh, you know, I don't necessarily, yes, I think luck, good fortune, plays a major role in all of our lives, I guess. And, uh, but I've, I've always tried to say to people, yeah, luck, luck is something that all of us get, but not all of us recognize. I mean, I, all I know is that when I got the chance to go to the Two Ice Coffee Bar, there was no hesitation. Grabbed that piece of luck by the throat and went there, played for a week. Didn't get recognized by too many people, um, <laughs> but then went on. And you have to grab that. You have to take the luck by its throat. Most people who don't feel they've had any, it's probably they didn't recognize it was there. So a lot of artists, I believe when I look at famous people and you think they had probably the same luck come their way, but they grabbed it. They took a hold of it and, and made it made it work for them. So I may, I may be oversimplifying it, but I'm just speaking for my own self. Mm. And that's why dreams that we have about being famous or whatever it is you dream, when they come true, uh, and in my case, most of the things I write about were just thoughts in my head. I didn't know that I, I didn't even know I was going to be 50 years old, let alone be 80 and have a 62-year-old <laughs> career. So it's masses of dreams all coming true. I think it was Tanya at my office who actually came up with the word dreamer because she was reading the, as, the, as it was written pages and pages of it, she was going through it as well. And so she had, she had the idea for dreamer, but then again, she doesn't know. <laughs> and it's lines from uh, the lovely Terry Britton song, of course, isn't it? There's that line about um, yesterday, the clouds were darkest. I could not see the end of it, but something inside of me never learned to quit. Would you say that sums you up? I think that summed me up. I, I just loved it. When I heard it, he sent it to me when I was in New York. And um, he said, I've got this song. And he sent it. He'd written it with um, Graham Lyle. And I, I played it. And I thought, it just this sounds like my escape from this horrible four-year period. And I, I, I told him that. He said, well, I, we wrote it for you because of what had happened. So it was absolutely, to be able to sing that was, you know, it was just wonderful. And the rise up, they're never going to keep me down. They're never going to yeah, break me yeah. down. In the end, I proved to them, the police and the BBC, that they couldn't break me down. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, why they, both of them did what they did. Because at the court case, um, towards the end, the superintendent of the South Yorkshire Police, who was in charge at the time when that accusation came, said from his screen, he, he couldn't be there personally, but it was videoed in, 
He said, I'm not sure what we're all doing there. I'm, I'm, the words to this effect, I'm not sure what we're doing here, he said. A very confused man came in. He didn't know, he was said he was 13 when he was abused. He didn't know whether it happened, uh, which football pitch it had happened at. He didn't know whether it happened in 1980, 81, 82 or 83. And I'm thinking, yeah, what are we doing here? Why would you even follow somebody's accusation who couldn't remember his 13th birthday for a start? Everybody knows when they were 13. So it was a, it was, it's a fantastic thing to have gone through the court. And, and I couldn't understand, you know, the one thing that still confuses me, that having put me through four years of uh, most unbelievable emotional torture, not a single head amongst the BBC and the, the high echelon of the BBC, I hasten to add, no, no heads rolled. Not one single one, and two of them have been promoted. The the, the journalist who made up most of the story uh, is now head of education. So that's the only thing I can smile about it now. But I, I, just, I thought it's just unbelievable. But it means that having fought for BBC and one one of my favourite, I saw somewhere in the paper it said, "This is the David and Goliath story." Me, David, and uh, <laughs> and the fact that we put them in their place means that they'll have to think very hard if, if, if ever they do this again. Now, I don't think they'll be able to do it again because and I met somebody else, a friend of mine who's a lawyer, and he went to some great lawyer's meeting and they, he said, your case, they call it cliff law. I think he said that, that wow. phrase. Um, that came up and I'm thinking, good. That means if it gets caught up in the law itself, it means that people, the groups like that, I mean, I hate saying the word BBC. To me, the baby, BBC are the engineers, the presenters, the producers. That's, they are not the people I was hurt by. They, they have been very kind to me. It's the high echelon. So they will have to think really strong and hard uh, when anything like this comes their way. They can't mm -hmm. just go for a scoop because they want to. Have you been able to forgive them? Have you been able to forgive the BBC? Yes, I, th I thought to myself, well, this is ridiculous. I can't, you, there's nothing else I can do. So I thought, well, yes, I'm happy to forgive them and get on with my life. So I'm, I feel now that I'm, in fact, when the court case ended, it seemed to me that I was able to, I did not punch the air. Hannaford was sitting behind me in the court when the judge made his final delivery. And uh, she said, I was so surprised. Your body language didn't change at all. And I said, she, I said, well, what did you expect? She said, I thought you were going to do this telesplays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, all I could feel, I was awash with relief. Yeah. I, I can't put it any better than that. And so it meant that everything I'd gone through was finished. It was all done. And we had one in both the cases. Yeah. The South Yorkshire Police actually publicly apologised. Yeah. The BBC only said the words, we're sorry he went through that, but we were doing our job. What job? That's not their job. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I've, I've forgiven them as well. And I've, I've, I'm past it now, but Cindy, I don't think I'm ever going to forget it. I'm not going to get over it. I quote that because I, what Gloria once said to me, years after Karen had died, you know, she had a terrible time with Karen's death. Of course, a mother would do. How can you lose your child? And we were all with her right the way through it all. But she said, I'm past it, but I'll never get over it. And I thought, hmm, that's exactly, she's worded the sentence exactly how I feel. I am past it, past it, but I'll never get over it.
and lessons have been learned and we're all looking forward to you being able to do the tour which you couldn't do this year so i hope i've still got my no. tickets for the same night next year wherever it was we were coming to see you because it would be great and it's good to see you looking so well last time i saw you you looked like you were about 173 years old at least and a bag of bones <laughs> like i remember a hug and thinking there's just bones here there's just bones you look well you've come through it with by the grace of god uh, oh. you have come through it and and that is for for people that love you that is great so thank you so much for talking to us and i hope the book is a huge success i'm sure it will be and look forward to talking to you again let's not leave it another 50 years though <laughs> no, let's try not to Cindy. thank you for a lovely interview <laughs> and i'm so glad to see you looking so well too and i hope we can meet up soon do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Welcome back to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. This show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For a free sample copy of the latest issue featuring more interviews like this one coming up, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I'm Cara Bentley and I've been speaking to Heidi Crowter. She's the 25-year-old who is campaigning to change the law which allows women to terminate their pregnancy any day up until birth if there has been a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Heidi has the condition herself, but she is so much more than that. She has a profound Christian faith, a cheeky sense of humour and an immensely positive outlook on life. I think you'll find her uplifting and funny. So without further ado, here's Heidi talking about her wedding last summer. We planned to have it on the 4th of July and that was the day that I was allowed weddings. We were going to have over 200 guests. But because of COVID, we had to cut down to 30 guests. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really mind. It was the best wedding of my life. <laughs> I've always dreamed of getting married because I've seen my, I've seen my siblings get married, my two brothers, and I've always wanted it for, my, for myself. And it was actually good timing, actually, because you had to get announced it the week before the wedding. That's so good. I know. And I, the, the reason why he did that is because um, it was his birth. I went to London the other day, one day. And um, it was his birthday that Friday. So I went in his birthday car, please allow weddings. <laughs> and he listened. And then it worked. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't really sure about how many people he would allow, so I was quite surprised when he said 30. Yeah, absolutely. And getting married is obviously one of those significant moments in life. You've now kind of started a new chapter but can you take us back to the beginning of your life? What was your upbringing like? Oh, I had, I had, um, I had a great upbringing. But when I was born, um, I actually nearly died. I actually had a, I was a really poorly baby. I had, um, I was diagnosed with leukemia. I was in heart failure. I had to have heart surgery. I was too poorly to have the chemo. 
and I also had pneumonia and, I, and my mum was called over to the hospital because I had stopped breathing and I had to resuscitate me. And I also had um, quite a lot of chest problems and pneumonia. That must have been pretty scary for your mum. It was very scary. She actually took it really hard when I was born. And what was they it They were like? quite surprised when I was born. Did she know that you had Down syndrome before you were born? Well, actually, she actually um, had um, experience of a child with Down syndrome because she had a cousin who had Down syndrome. But very sadly, she only lived three years. She, she knew. She was the one who diagnosed me. She just looked at me and said she had it. And my dad said, so two weeks before I was born, she had a dream that she would have a baby with Down syndrome. And her two weeks, two weeks later, her dream or nightmare came true. I'm sure she call it a dream now. <laughs> yeah. It probably was a nightmare when she first found out. But you say often that your upbringing was, you know, very positive, very good. What was it? I, like? had, a fantastic, I had a fantastic upbringing. I had... Um, um, in 1997, my, my mum had uh, my baby sister called Susie, and she was amazing with me. She actually um, taught me how to speak. When my sister started speaking, I just copied her, and I've never stopped since. Me and my sister are really close. I have one sister and two brothers. I've got Tim, Dan, and Susie. But my favourite one is probably, you know what? I love them all equally. You got close to the line there. I nearly had to edit that out. Yeah, I'm not saying what my favourite is because it will probably upset two of them. <laughs> Did you go to church as a child? Yeah, um, I went to church um, since I, I've always been to church since I was at, from a young age. And I always love going to church and singing the hymns. And my, I have a lot of favourite hymns. This might take quite a long time to say, but one of my all-time favourites has to be To God Be The Glory. Why? It's just a fantastic hymn. And it reminds me of all the great things he's doing for me. And another hymn that I like is called, um, you may not know it, but it's a very, it's a very, it's a Christmas hymn. So with heaven missing an ever find the voice. My favourite verse in that is, um, all hope was, when Adam sinned and Eve believed the lie, all hope was gone until all his words were said. The women see to cross the serpent's head. That's my favourite line in the whole of the song. Because it's, it, it's the first promise of Jesus. And the whole song just leads up to Jesus. Would you say you were a Christian as a child or when did you become a Christian? Oh, um, I became a Christian when I was 12. And the verse that saved me was John 3, verse 16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. And I love the word whoever in that verse, because it's not matter who you are. It's also, um, it also, um, I also love positive songs of praise. And the word whoever really um, reminds me of the song meeting on songs of praise, where it says, and the creed and the colour and the name won't matter. 
that's why I like the word however. When you were growing up, was there a moment where you were aware that you had Down syndrome or you were told? I think um, I was, I think, I'm not really sure. Um, I think I would say, um, I think I was told, I think. I'm not sure how old I was, but um, I always, um, I didn't really, um, I think I, I, I think I would say that um, I had Down syndrome, but who cares? Yeah. How was it at church or at Christian camps? Were you treated differently or did you have to, or was it just the same as everyone else? Well, going back to my upbringing, um, I've always had, um, my parents always treated me the same as anyone else. So, so, um, so, for example, um, the one time when me and my sister were, play, were playing fizzles, she said, oh, Holly can't do it, I can. Then she got punished. And if I did the same, I'll get the same punishment. So it's easy if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and what about at school? I had a great school. It was fantastic. I went to three mainstream schools, House Community Preschool, Mount Nile Primary School, and Tarleyville School at Alamrus College. And I actually surprised myself in Tarleyville School. I got the highest mark in foundation French. I even got the second top grade in my speaking. And going back to you, I had a fantastic time in my church. A half an hour after I was born, um, my pastor Paul was actually held me when I was born. About an hour after I was born, and he held me. And he just looked at me. And he said in the, on, on our wedding day, that moment when I held you in my arms, I just knew that you were precious. And he was and, the same pastor who, who married you this summer, was he? Yeah. He was the one who was with me. He actually visited me when I was in hospital. And then he, then he dedicated me. And the verse he gave me was Malachi 3, verse 17. And it was later in mine on the day that I mixed my jewels. And he also echoed the same verse in my baptism when I was 13. And then I just remembered that I'm a jewel. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if I have done snow or not, because I am still the same as any other baby. For example, I'm the same as my amazing nephew, good Joss. He's lovely. I love my nephew. Is he cute? He's nine. He's very cheeky. <laughs> but he's, he's very lovely. He, um, he has taught me a lot in my life, my nephew. And he's taught me how to have fun. And your perception of your upbringing and school and church is all incredibly positive. Do you think that's the case for, for all people with Down syndrome? Well, I don't, um, I am, I am very sorry to all those who have had a hard time in school. But I, I would say um, it's not always the same that every single person with Down syndrome, because my, um, my husband had a fantastic time at school. But he was an absolute nightmare. He would always, um, he tried to win away. And he also tried to, um, he also used to throw hats of defence. And he also, um, he also 
um, thought it was a good idea to um, thought it was a good idea to take um, his mum's engagement ring to school, and nearly um, asked to go to marry him. What happened? <laughs> she hated me. Um, well, thankfully, the, the, the teaching assistant actually actually saw the ring in the back and actually got the ring off him. And is that cheeky side? Is that what you fell in love with? Well, actually, um, we can always cheeky sometimes. Sometimes I can be cheeky. Sometimes my nephew can be cheeky, but can't we all? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it might be a family trait, Heidi. <laughs> Well, yes, he does have a cheeky side, but we all have a cheeky side sometimes. So there's his nephew called Noah. He's very cheeky. But besides doing his cheekiness, that's not what I fell in love with. But I fell in love with his personality, even though cheekiness is his personality. <laughs> I, quite, I, I quite like his cheekiness. Going back to your, your kind of positive outlook on life, do you think maybe people are surprised by that because they don't I understand? Have- yeah, I had a very good, um, I had a very good life. Ever since I walked into my church, they've always been amazing to me because um, they've always met my needs. And with Down syndrome, just come medical problems. Um, because I've got, um, I have, um, I also have celiac, which means I'm not allowed gluten or wheat. So they have to, whenever we have like a let's together in the church, they all make sure there's a gluten-free option. Have there been other times where the church has been, I guess, understanding about you having Down syndrome, having different needs to others? Well, actually, um, when um, in my dedication service, they, when he said that verse, Malachi 2 verse 17, it made, it made people open up to me and just take me in. And ever since I walked through those doors at Hillfield's Church Coventry, it was they've been absolutely amazing to me. They've always they love my outlook on life, and they love that every single hymn they put on the screen, I say I love that hymn. I do that every time. I have a lot of favorite hymns. Are there any you don't like? And it's really hard to pick one favorite. Oh, there's only one hymn I don't like. Um, is this is the air I breathe because it just goes on, it's got nothing to it. I also love my song is Love and Known and Why Done, Why Done in Majesty. You should uh, release an album, all your favorite songs. It's going to be a long album. It probably will be actually. Do you I'm think sorry. some people are surprised at how, how good a quality of life you have? Do you think they have misconceptions? Well, um, when I was born, um, the day, um, the, night I was, the, night, the night after I was born, my mum actually called to my dad saying that she'll never get married and she'll never be a bridesmaid. And I, I surprised my mum three times being a bridesmaid and I was surprised by getting married. And I actually surprised myself when I got a B in my French speaking. You still enjoy speaking still- French? Yeah, I still carry on with that. I, there's a language website called Duolingo where you can improve it. And at the moment, I'm on a 90-day streak. That's pretty good. Thank you. I did have a very long streak and I lost it. How do you find talking about your faith with other people with Down syndrome? I absolutely love talking about my faith. 
because the motive of my faith is that Zal comes to know him as well. And that's what I want. I want him to come to know Jesus for themselves. And um, I love talking to my... Um, in, in the first lockdown, I actually um, took it upon myself to do devotions with my granny because she's all on her own. We would read a, we would read a, we would read a bit of Bible and we would um, then pray and sing a hymn. And then my dad made a joke saying, um, there's a verse in what we're having Jesus, do you think this palace will take you? And my dad said, they really just sing like that. <laughs> <laughs> my dad's very good at making jokes. My favourite joke of my dad is, um, when do you have wedding meals? When they're ready. Like <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>, sad. <laughs> so why do you enjoy sharing your, your faith so much and, and do you feel confident doing it? Well, I, I love sharing my faith because um I just I just love Jesus and all he's done for me. And he's done a lot for me. He even died on the cross for me, so what can I do but talk about him? And I'm lost for words when I talk about Jesus. He's my Lord, my Saviour, and my King. Yes, I do fail him sometimes, but he still forgives me. There's a verse in the Bible that I love, which is um, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is it ever different in the way you share the gospel to people with Down syndrome as opposed to people without it? I think it's just the same. I don't think it matters whether they got an X chromosome or not. They're still um, a lost soul. My husband's got a best friend, um, and he's not Christian, and I want to um, want him to be saved. And in the last few years, you've really got into campaigning. What started that? So um, in April 2016, I started to screen us out. And um, that was about NIPT, which is non-invasive prenatal testing, which can detect Down syndrome earlier. And so the reason why I started campaigning that is because they rolled it out in 2018 without letting us know. So, and they also have been saying um, really out-of-date facts. They haven't, um, they always say they'll never, they'll never walk and have a talk. If you know me, I never stop talking. Sometimes I wish that I could go to the doctor's surgery, and um, but uh, sometimes I wish that I can just take my husband to the doctor's room. Look, this is, this is my husband. He can cook, he can clean, well, when he wants to. And actually, James, I think, James is amazing. He is absolutely the best husband in the world. Anyway, aside from James... <laughs> Um, let's go back to the campaigning. So, um, so the problem is, is that they did it. They didn't do it ethically. Um, they are saying um, let out of their facts. So the campaign gets we us out is led by an amazing woman called Lynn Murray, who has a daughter with Down syndrome called Rachel. She's amazing. I met her. She's an amazing young lady. And aside from that. Um, so we're basically doing this campaigning to get the test brought in ethically. So you need to ask, you need to ask them first. And I know loads of people with Down syndrome who has 
surprise people. And I got a phone call to us, yeah, that it surprised me. He's been in the cop series, he's been in Doctors, he's been in loads of actors. He's actually been in Hans and Gretel. Did, and, did, did oh, your mum have a screening before you were born? Oh no, my mum refused to at any of the tests, but Edward, my mum refused any tests with her babies because she knew she wouldn't do anything if she found out. And how does the law around Down syndrome and abortion make you feel? So basically, at the moment, a baby with Down syndrome can be brought to birth, but a baby without Down syndrome can be brought to 24 weeks. And that law makes me feel that I'm better off dead, but I'm not. I know that I'm not, but that's how the law makes me feel. And also, um, it also... Um, make sure that I haven't got a good quality of life. And also, um, it also upsets me because um, it upsets my husband. And I don't want anyone to um, be mean to my husband. He is the best husband in the world. And I don't really mind if he has that syndrome. I fell in love with who he is. And I think what this world needs to do is to see the person behind he has a chromosome. And there's, um, this is actually the, the tagline for my court case. It's a somewhere Bruno Mars, and I think it's perfectly. We are amazing just the way we are. And that's my favourite song by Bruno Mars. How does it make you feel that a lot of parents decide to abort babies with Down syndrome before they're even born? Oh, um, I would say um, it makes me feel that I shouldn't be here, but um, that's not that's not that's not the reason. The reason is um, about the about quality in the womb. What can be done to persuade parents? Do you think that having a baby with Down syndrome is completely manageable and, in fact, amazing? Well, um, I would say if um, I, I would say if they are um, a bit scared, I would say um, don't be scared. Meet someone who has the condition. Meet my husband, and you'll be surprised at what he, what what they can do. Because my husband can do anything. He can act. He can cook. He can do the recycling. He can do the dishwasher. And he's also very good at Monopoly. And he's getting better at that. I love, play, I love playing Monopoly because every time we play it, James Maps get, James Maps gets better and better. And that's what I want for James. Who wins? Oh, mostly um, me. Well, actually, the other day we lost. <laughs> What's it like knowing that you'll be involved in a court case next year? Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I just can't believe that the court case has gone this far to the higher court. Are you looking forward to it? I am very looking forward to it, but I'm also a bit nervous that it might not go ahead because of the way COVID's going. I just hope and pray that it will happen. When is it scheduled to happen? Um, it was supposed to be happening this month in November, but because of COVID, it's all been delayed. I'll let you know when it is. What do you think will happen at the court case? Well, I'm hoping that I will win. And um, I'm just so happy that the, that the judge has allowed it for the High Court. 
because that's the second that's the second court in the world. That's the second highest court in the world. And I think my husband will be there as well. He did say that he wanted to support me all along the way. That's what husbands do. What would you say to, to people who who want to keep the current law? How would you persuade them otherwise? Oh, uh, I would say um, that I want the law to be changed because it's downright discrimination. How can Christians pray for you and help you? Well, actually, um, the Christians pray to actually spare me on. And whenever I feel like giving it up, I just think, okay, so I should put your armour on. And I just can get first back to you to do it. I get like, the kick in the backside and I can do it. Are there any ways that people can support the case? Well, actually, there is, um, there is, um, uh, there is, um, if you Google downright discrimination, there is a crowd fund. Last time I saw it was on the £72,000. You can just donate to it. And you can also find out more about it on my Facebook page and my Twitter page, which is How I Do Crowd to Live in the Dream. And you can also see posts about my amazing life, about um, how amazing my life is. You can see photos of me taking the dogs out with my husband. And you can see photos of us just living a normal life. In the next uh, year or so, you've got, well, the future for you involves a court case and the start of your married life. It's a pretty exciting time at the moment in your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually loving married life. What are your and James's hopes for the future? Oh, um, we hope to have a long married, we hope to have a long and happy married life. Um, we also hope just to um, spread joy and love to everyone and to be like, a Christian couple, and we also hope to, um, James said his testimony the other night, we hope to, um, him to become a member of our church, and I also hope that James will grow in his faith and his love for Jesus. James is the most most joyful person I know. When he was in hospital once, he actually was just singing in hospital. I I love Jesus that look on life. He's so he's so positive. That's why I mean Jesus are so good together because we both love the same films. Do you have a favourite film? Oh, I would say probably Into the Woods. I've already seen it twice and I love it already. I love it. My favourite one has to be James Corden. For me, I think it just brings the humour to it. Definitely. Well, Heidi, are there anything? Is there any way that we can pray for you as we close? Oh, um, just pray that the court case will be successful and pray that I'll win the case. Thanks for listening to The Profile. This show is sponsored by Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. For a free sample copy, visit premierchristianity.com. That's all we've got time for this week. I'm Cara Bentley. See you next time.